Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. It's 6.30 and time to return to the good old days of radio drama as we present The Secrets of Scotland Yard. Besides, think of the work it would mean. 
We never had even had a spare moment. If you ever fancy to chain yourself to an office desk, do so by all means. But it's not my idea of a pleasant life. Mm, perhaps you're right. Well, then, well, then we replace Fontaine, but with whom? Well, there must be some competent man in the city we can woo with a sufficiently tempting offer. Well, that fellow Johnson at the Bank of England. No, 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 to a... Oh, Hutchins, for instance? Wouldn't trust him an inch. Mm, I see your point. Well, now, let's think. I don't see why we have to go outside our own house. What do you mean? My dear fellow, I am not referring to a what, I am referring to a who. In other words, our late partner's son. Young Henry? Precisely. Hang it all, man. Well, well, I mean to say Henry's a fine young lad and all that, but... But, but, but he's what? only a boy. Nonsense, he's 23. 23? Hardly out of swaddling clothes. My dear Sibbleton, we've known for a long time that Henry Fontaroy has inherited his father's genius for figures. There is not the slightest question he's by far the best clerk we've ever had here. And that's all true enough, but do you deny his seriousness? No. His industry? No. His scrupulous honesty? Good heavens, no. We admit he's a model young man in every way. Then what on earth has age to do with it? It seems to me he's the ideal choice. He's been with us ever since he was 16. He knows the business from end to end. And I am sure our clients would have the same confidence in him as the Lord's had in his father. It'd be uh, throwing a heavy responsibility on such a young man. I've no doubt his shoulders are broad enough to bear it. Let's call him in and talk it over, shall we? And so at 23, Henry Fontaroy found himself in what amounted to complete charge of Bernard Street Map. As time passed, the partner saw no reason to regret that choice. He was first at work every morning, last to leave at night. In addition to directing the bank's affairs, he did the work of three clerks. It wasn't until 1810, three years after his appointment, that Henry Fontaroy gave his partners any real cause for worry. And then it could hardly be said that this was due to any personal illusions of grandeur, or indeed, as he emphasized, to any fault of his. The simple fact was that he'd taken a normal business risk and it had gone astray. The position is this, gentlemen. We have advanced Messrs. Brickwood and Company in all £60,000. The security that we accepted in good faith has proved worthless. The principles of the company have decamped and the company is bankrupt. Does uh, that mean we're going to lose the lot? I'm afraid so, Mr. Marsh. Oh, gosh, it's all matter. Surely some of it's recoverable. I'll be surprised if we get back a thousand. Oh, isn't there anything we can do? Can't we sue or something? For heaven's sake, Sybil. Henry's already told us that the principles have decamped. You can have warrants issued if you like. That's not going to get us back our 60,000. Uh, tell me, uh, Henry, how does the bank stand over this? We're still solvent, I hope. Uh, just about. I think we can squeeze through a bit of manipulating and juggling here and there. Of course, if the news got out and there were a rush, we'd be done for. Then it's up to all of us to see that it, it doesn't get out. Uh, you'll do the best you can for us, won't you, Henry? Naturally. Uh, this manipulating and juggling you talk about, uh, it means nothing, uh, well, I mean, uh, nothing but wouldn't bear investigation, I hope. Well, of course not. Just a matter of realizing on securities, mm. calling in loans and so forth. Dash it all, Sybil. You don't suggest Henry a descend to sharp practices, do you? No, 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 certainly not. It's just that I don't understand these things very well. Well, we'll leave it to you, Fauntleroy, to uh, straighten the whole thing out. Have no fear, gentlemen. Everything's going to be all right. And despite Fauntleroy's assurance, this is only the first of a series of setbacks in which the bank found itself involved in the next couple of years. What with the Napoleonic Wars raging on the continent, there was a general scarcity of money in England, and week after week, hitherto solid firms were crashing into insolvency. 
Only Fauntleroy's incomparable skill kept the business afloat. Yet all his genius was not equal to coping with a crisis in his private affairs which arose at this time. His ambition had always been to marry for money. It was therefore foolish of him to pay such assiduous court to one Susanna Young, who was charming and very lovely to look at, but quite penniless. Doubly foolish, in fact, since Susanna had a hot-headed brother, Robert, with whom the matter of family honor was something of an obsession. Inevitably, the time came when Robert Young paid Pontoroy a far from friendly visit. Henry, I'm a blunt man who speaks my mind. I have a plain question to put you, and I shall expect a plain answer. Why, certainly, my dear fellow. What is it? What are your intentions towards my sister? Well, <laughs> really, Robert, that's rather an extraordinary thing to ask, isn't it? I'm waiting for an answer. Well, I'm afraid I'm not prepared to give you one. Surely this is a matter for Susanna and myself. I, I don't imagine she'd take it kindly if she knew you were interfering in her affairs. I'm here at Susanna's request. I find that hard to believe. Now, look here, Henry. Let's stop evading the point. What is the point? The point is that for a year or more, your conduct towards Susanna has led not only herself, but her family and her friends to expect an ultimate proposal of marriage. That's not. Oh, no, it's not. You've toyed with the girl's affections. You've deliberately led her on. You've hopelessly compromised her in the eyes of the world, and now, my friend, you're going to marry her. No, who says so? I do. Oh, don't be a fool, Robert. Put that pistol away. Not until I've your solemn promise that you'll make Susanna your wife. Suppose I refuse. I shall give you ten seconds to make up your mind, Henry. And I'll shoot. Oh, this is too absurd. One, two, three. I mean it, you know. Yes, I... I rather believe you do. Four, five... Six. Oh, no, look, can't we talk this over quietly without all these heroic seven, eight, nine? It's your last chance, Henry. Do you promise? Well, I, 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 I don't seem to have much option, do I? All right, I, I promise. The marriage didn't last, of course. A matter of a year or so, just long enough for Pontroy to find himself not only a husband, but a father. Then the unhappy Mrs. Pontroy retired with her child to her parents' home in Tunbridge Wells consoled with an allowance of 400 pounds a year. And there, as far as this story is concerned, she remained. The incident seems to have had an unfortunate effect on Pontroy. His devotion to business and his conduct during the business hours remained as irreproachable as ever. But after nightfall, he shed his respectability and plunged into a riotous life of drinking, gambling, and women. Before long, coffeehouse gossip was linking his name with that of Mary Bertram, a woman of great beauty, few morals, and even less scruples. Mary Bertram's tastes were expensive, as Fontaroy soon found. Oh, oh, it's you, Henry, darling. Hello. Good evening, my sweet. Mm, you do look dashing tonight. And you look ravishing, thank as always. <laughs> thank you, Henry. So early, aren't you? No, my dear, you're late. We're due at the Corinthic in ten minutes. I'll help myself to a drink while you finish dressing. Oh, no hurry. Do you like my new bracelet? Mmm, quite a charming little ball. I can't thank you enough, Henry. It's awfully sweet of you to buy it for me. Oh, I wasn't aware that I had. Oh, yes, darling. I got it today at Cartier's. They simply put it on your account. You don't mind, do you? Well, uh, how much did it cost? Oh, a mere trifle, really. Two hundred guineas. Two? Two hundred guineas? But... But why, yes. Henry? Oh, I, I bought you a set of pearl earrings only last week. Yes, I know, dear. But I simply had to have a bracelet to go with them. Oh, you don't begrudge me a little thing like that, do you? Oh, no, of course not. But you, you must remember, my dear, I, I'm not made of money. You're a banker, aren't you? Yes, but, but that doesn't signify. Oh, nonsense, Henry. All the 
bankers are rich. Everyone knows that. Now, do stop being miserable over a few pence. Now, 200 guineas is not a few pence, Mary. I, I try not to be a niggardly man. I, I pride myself I'm always open-handed and generous, but, but after all, there are limits. Oh, dear. If we're going to have a lecture about money, I shan't go to the Corinthic at all. I shall go to the theatre with Reggie Kent instead. That young bounder. Oh, Reggie may have his faults, but quibbling over a few paltry guineas is not one of them. And he simply idolizes me. He said so a dozen times in the last month. He's really rather a dear, and I do treat him shabbily. I must try and be kinder to him in future. Oh, all right, my dear. You win, you you always do. Now, run along now and finish your dressing. We, we don't want to be too late. Coping with the willful extravagances of Mary Bertram was in itself enough for Henry Fontaroy. But with the passing of time, affairs of the bank became more critical than ever. More clients defaulted, more investments went astray, until by 1814, even Fontaroy's genius was unequal to maintaining for the establishment an air of untroubled prosperity. At last, in desperation, Fontaroy was forced to do something he'd always wished to avoid. He sought help from the Bank of England. You ask us, Mr. Fontaroy, to advance you 50,000 pounds on nothing more tangible than your note of hand. But not my personal note, sir. And naturally, it will have the backing of the Burner Street Bank. And what security has the Burner Street Bank to offer to? Why, its reputation in 22 years of trading, of course. Its goodwill. Reputation and goodwill, Mr. Fontaroy, are commodities that have been at a discount for some considerable time. Can you produce documentary evidence to prove your ability to cover the sum you asked for? If I could do that, sir, I should have no need of a loan. And since you apparently can't, sir, there'll be no loan. You can't turn me down like this. It rather seems as though that's what I'm doing, doesn't it? You, you, you don't realize we've simply got to have this money to tide us over. Otherwise, we, we face a danger of insolvency. I'm sorry, Mr. Fontaineau, but it's not part of our function to bolster up the crumbling finances of jelly-built private banks. Good day, sir. You'd like to see us crash, wouldn't you? You'd like to see every private bank forced out of existence so you could hold a monopoly. Well, this is one pleasure that's going to be denied you. I wasn't born yesterday, sir. I've held my bank together through difficult times for seven years, and I shall continue to do so without the aid of charity from you. Good day, Mr. Fontaineau. Good day! To avoid financial disaster, there was only one thing to do. Even before Fontaineau's carriage had returned him to Burner Street, his agile mind had worked out the details of what he planned. fateful day in 1814, when not only the bank whose affairs he controlled, but he personally faced financial ruin, Henry Fontaineau embarked on the first of a series of forgeries which were to make history. His modus operandi was simple. The Burner Street Bank held on behalf of various clients innumerable bonds, consoles, long and short annuities, navy loans, and other government securities. The practice was then, as it is today, for the bank to collect the dividends on these investments and to pay them direct into the current accounts of the holders. In most cases, these bonds lie in our safe for years unseen. Uh, take these 5,000 pounds worth of consoles we're holding for Miss Francis Young, for instance. Now, I know Miss Young's signature very well. I can imitate it as easily as I sign my own. Uh, what's to stop me forging a uh, power of attorney, authorizing me to sell the bonds on her behalf? Hmm, 
sounds easy enough. But doesn't the power of attorney require the signature of witnesses? Well, of course. But I can forge these too, can't I? A couple of my clerks here. <laughs> How are they to ever know? And what about these dividends? Once the bonds are sold, they'll cease, won't they? Surely as soon as that happens, Miss Young will start asking awkward questions, won't she? Ah, but they won't stop. That's the point. And when any dividends fall due, I shall have the money paid in and credited to her in the normal way. I tell you the scheme's quite infallible. And that is how Pontarai operated. Whenever he needed money, some bonds were sold under Ford's authority, and dividends were paid scrupulously as they became due. It took some incredibly brilliant juggling of books and falsifications of entries. A single slip would have been detected, and it would have given the whole game away. But Pontarai made no slip. Of course, it, it can't go on forever, I realize that. But there's no danger that it will. Uh, once we've passed the crisis and the bank's prospering again, I shall gradually rebuy and replace the bonds, and no one will be any the wiser. In fact, it amounts to this. I'm not really stealing them at all, merely borrowing them for the time being. There spoke the incurable optimism of the born gambler. Everything will be all right tomorrow, once the crisis is passed, once we've turned the corner. But for Pontaroy, that corner never appeared. And so he was forced to go on and on, covering one embezzlement with another. There were narrow escapes, of course. For instance, one day he had a call from a well-known broker. I, I'm sorry to trouble you, Mr. Fonteroy, but uh, there's something going on I, I don't quite understand. Oh, indeed. Well, what's that? Uh, Lady Nelson's a client of yours, isn't she? Yes, a very old and valued one. Well, I had instructions from her this morning to sell 5,000 pounds worth of 4% you're reputed to be holding on her behalf. Well, well, sir, I've made a thorough check, and uh, there are no 4% registered in your name. Uh, not one. But naturally, my dear fellow, I've already sold them on her behalf. She asked me to do so only yesterday. Oh, she, she didn't tell me that? Well, then she must have forgotten. You know how vague women are about business. All the same, it's most irregular. I, I mean to say, she, she always comes to me for these things. Why should she suddenly change her practice? Ah, I've a good mind to tell her, but... My dear man, you'd be much better advised to say nothing at all. After all, what harm has been done? Here are the proceeds, and here's your brokerage fee. You will find the amounts quite correct. Now, if you don't want to embarrass Lady Nelson and so run the risk of losing her as a client, you'll pretend you put the deal through in the normal way and let it go at that. Well, uh, perhaps you're right. My dear fellow, I'm sure I am. I'll take your advice this time, but I, I still think it's all very peculiar. Sometimes clients died. Before their executors took over the estate, Pontaroy would repurchase the stolen bonds and register them once more in the name of their rightful holder. To finance this, he would have to commit another forgery, of course, but by now he was in so deep that it didn't seem to matter. As his forgeries increased, so did the recklessness of his personal expenditure. Even his partners began to notice it. You know, Strachey, we should have a serious talk to young Henry one of these days. Oh, uh, why? Surely you've noticed the way he's splashing his money about this last couple of years? On the soul of some of the stories I hear about him. Oh, I, I shouldn't pay too much attention to that, I you. You know how gossip magnifies things. Even so, there must be a solid foundation of truth in a lot of them. You know, this establishment of his at Hampton on Thames, for instance. Around that house, he's bought at Brighton. They say some of the weekend parties he gives are, are quite fabulous. Oh, well, he's a young man still, and I dare say he likes to cut a bit of a dash. And all these parasites who seem to hang on to him. And his gambling. And his women. That uh, Mary Bartram, for instance. Oh, good heavens, he, he broke with her a year ago. Uh, there have been others since. Mrs. Manners and the Standish girl. Uh, to name just a couple. 
I don't know how he keeps up with them, I'm sure. Upon the word, I don't. Henry's no fool when it comes to money. He's proved that to us often enough, goodness knows. Even so, he'd need to be a millionaire to live the way he seems to. I do hope there's nothing wrong. Wrong? What do you mean? Well, after all, he has complete control of the bank. How can we be sure it really is his money he's spending so prodigally, and not the bank's? Really, Sybil, that's a most outrageous suggestion. We've known Henry since he was a boy. However, we may uh, disapprove of his private behavior, there's always... And that is his scrupulous and absolute honesty. Nevertheless, I do think for his own good we should call him... You may if you choose, but I shall have nothing to do with it. After all, his personal affairs are his own, and he'd be extremely presumptuous of us to interfere. Hmm, yes, yes, I do say you're right. Oh, well, we'll uh, think no more about it. By now, Fontaroy's forgeries had run into hundreds of thousands. The strain of being constantly on the alert was telling. His health and his nerves began to suffer. It wasn't only the need to keep one jump ahead of discovery, but the fact that there was no one in whom to confide, that he must keep the whole thing bottled inside himself, that brought him down most of all. In time, his need for a confidant became desperate. He found her last. Her name was Maria Forbes. She was little more than a schoolgirl, but she was beautiful, and she had intelligence and sympathy. And one boy dared to hope that she loved him for himself. Even so, he hesitated for a long time until one night... You're there tonight, Henry? Yes, I, I am, rather. And worried, too. Well, let's not go out. I have Sarah to us a meal. Let's just sit by the fire and talk. Well, I... Please. Uh, it'd be rather tedious for you, wouldn't it? Of course not. You're in trouble of some kind, aren't you, Henry? Trouble? What makes you think that? You can trust me, Henry. Yes, but how far? Suppose what I had to say to you were to put me completely in your hands. To give you the power of life or death over me. I give you so that nothing you say will ever pass my lips. Look at me. You must believe me. Yes. Yes, I, I do believe you, my dear. Very well, then. I, I'll tell you. And so, as they sat together in the quiet room, their faces lit only by the flickering flames of the fire, Henry Fontaroy unburdened his soul. He held back nothing, spared himself nothing. Nor did he excuse himself. At last, it was all over. Well... There you are, my dear. You wanted the story, and now you have it. What you must have suffered, Henry. I've suffered no more than I deserved. Don't you realize what I've been telling you, Maria? I've deliberately and willfully committed crime after crime after crime. If I'm ever caught, I, I shall be hanged. Oh, no. Oh, yes. And quite rightly. Couldn't you replace all those bones? No, it's gone too far for that. Not even if you stayed your houses at Hampton and Brighton and realized all their assets? My dear girl, that wouldn't repay a tenth of it or a twentieth. How much do you owe altogether? Oh, I've not worked it out exactly. It can't be less than three hundred thousand pounds. That's a fortune. Several fortunes. But, but where did it all go? Oh, you couldn't possibly have spent all that on yourself. Oh, good Lord, no. Of course I haven't. But most of it's gone back into the bank to keep it solid. Well, how's it all going to end, Henry? There's only one way it can end. I'm tired, my dear. The struggle is coming too much for me. One day I'll make a blunder and then... then it'll be all over. No, you mustn't wait for that. Let's go away now while you're still free. I'll leave my partners to shoulder the burden. Well, why should you consider them? They've never considered you. We'll go away together. Over to the continent somewhere. You can change your name and we'll begin afresh. Would you do that for me? I'll blame you for the man I... Oh, my dear, you don't know what it means to hear you say that. If only we could. Why not? What's the status? You could get away from the bank without rousing suspicion, couldn't you? Yes, I, I 
Anything is better than just waiting for the crash. If we have to get it, I'm sure we could. Promise me you'll, you'll try. Yeah, well, I, I'll think about it anyway. To escape, that was it. The only solution. The more Pontevoy thought about it, the more convinced he became that Maria was right. With his usual thoroughness, he began to let his plans. He dropped a complete list of embezzled bonds. To indemnify his partners, he wrote and signed a brief confession. To keep up the credit of our house, I have forged Charles of attorney and have thereupon sold out all the sums and the risk appended herewith. This I have done without the knowledge of my partners. For it, I kept the full blame. This confession and the list he locked in a tin box, which he placed in the bank safe. Even so, there was much to do before he could get away. As unobtrusively as possible, he began the immense task of straightening out his own tangled affair. By now, it was 1824, ten years since his first fortune. So long, he saw the heat undue and possible dangerous hate, and darkly, the blow fell. A client of the bank, one Lieutenant Colonel Frank Bellis of Oxted, died, leaving 46,000 pounds invested in 3% annuities for his wife and his family. The bonds were among those Pontoroy had forged and sold. An executor of the estate called on the banker. My co-executor and I have decided uh, to relieve ourselves of responsibility uh, to hand over the whole estate to the Court of Chancery for administration. So, my dear sir, if you'd be good enough to have prepared a complete statement together with the securities and so on. Yes, of course. I'll have it attended to in due course. Uh, when may I call for it? Uh, this afternoon? No, no. I'm afraid I must ask you to give us a few days' grace. But uh, surely it is a very simple job. No more than half an hour's work. I'm sorry, but we're extremely busy just now. I can't possibly let you have it before next Monday. You're not being very helpful, Mr. Fonkler. I assure you, sir, I'm doing the very best I can. Oh, well, if you can't hurry it up, you can't, I suppose. I shall be here at ten next Monday. A good day, sir. There was only one way out to avoid detection. To raise the 46,000 pounds somehow and rebuck the missing bond. With grim desire, Fonkler said about the task that he might have saved himself the trouble. For even as he began to check over the securities that he might yet sell, the executor of the estate, his suspicions aroused, was at the Bank of England. I'm sorry, sir. There's no record on the register of any 3% imperial annuities held by Mr. Bellis. Yeah, but there must be. I'll study the list for yourself, sir. There is a record, however, of certain bonds having been sold on Mr. Bellis's behalf last year. Uh, sold? But by whom? By uh, Mr. Fontler, yeah, here's the power of attorney with Mr. Bellis's signature. Let me see. Why, where did that signature to a forgery? That's a very serious charge to make, sir. So serious that I propose to repeat it before a magistrate. Guard that document carefully, young man. You'll probably be subpoenaed to produce it a little later. Fontaroy was not at home with the police call that evening. The next morning, as he walked into the bank. Are you Henry Fontaroy? Yes, I'm, I'm afraid I don't want for your arrest. On what charge? On a number of charges, all to do with forgeries and uttering. This is absurd. Look here, Constable, you're, you're a good fellow. What would you say to a thousand pounds in cash? Oh, so now it's attempted bribery as well, eh? You'd better come along with me, and I wouldn't try any tricks if I were you. News of Fontaroy's arrest spread through the city like wildfire. Frantic depositors rushed to the Bernard Street Bank to find the doors closed and tacked on them a notice suspending payment. The police questioning Pontaroy continued to assert his innocence until his signed confession was found. Then he broke down and admitted everything. The trial was a sensation of the year. The newspapers had already prejudged Pontaroy, and every breath of scandal in his private life was relentlessly dragged to light and featured in their columns. The jury was absent only 20 minutes before returning a verdict of guilty. 
On November 30, 1824, outside Newgate Prison, before a crowd of 100,000 people, Henry Fontenoy was hanged by the neck till he was dead. In 1832, forgery ceased to be a capital crime. Fontenoy made one fatal mistake. He'd been found out eight years too soon. Well, that's over now, but I'll be back again soon to tell you some more of the secrets of Scotland Yard. Meanwhile, this is Clive Brooks saying goodbye and pleasant dreams. for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.